0: Hi, I'm Sylvain Bertolo, and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. Today, my guest is Brooke Eby, and we're going to talk about amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as ALS. Hi, Brooke. Thank you for joining the podcast. How are you doing?
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Me too. Uh, so, as we do every time, I love starting with a song. Uh, so what song did you choose and why is it meaningful to you?
1: <laughs> I picked Kokomo by the Beach Boys. Um, I feel like it's just the happiest song. I listened to it a lot when I was a kid. I don't know why. When I was a toddler, that was like my song. And I thought it was called Aruba. Which I couldn't which I couldn't say so I would just scream Abba at my family to play it or just sing it all the time so oh, good nice. memories with that song for me
0: nice very nice and uh, it's interesting because I uh, never really understood the the lyrics for that song up to the point where I lived in the UK and my English was better and I realized <laughs> that they were saying names of Islands and places. Yeah, it,
1: it's not really like a thought provoking song. I, no. I probably thought you were reading too much into it. Um but yeah, it's just like a happy, happy song, I think.
0: Yes. Yeah, I agree. Uh so we're talking about ALS, uh, which affects you. Um should we start how you uh realized that there was something not quite right and, and you yeah. got diagnosed?
1: So I lived a pretty normal first 29 years. I, you know, worked full time had a great group of friends, great family. And then as I was walking to a conference one day when I was 29, I started limping and I had worked out pretty regularly. I wouldn't call myself like a power athlete by any means, but I would go to like Pilates classes. So I thought maybe I just tweaked my back or something. Mm -hmm. And Really, the limp never went away. I kept noticing it getting weaker and weaker in my left foot, and so finally, uh, a couple after a couple of coworkers pointed out that I was walking differently, I had my sister take a look at it. Who she's a doctor, and I figured, you know, she'd tell me like, "Oh, you just need, you know, a chiropractor or something easy," and she asked me to walk on my heels. And as I was walking forward, my left foot would slap down onto the ground. I couldn't keep my heel raised. So that's something called foot drop. And it can happen if you, you know, pinch a nerve. It can be sort of a a mild effect. But in my case, after going to a ton of PT and trying everything, it just wasn't getting better. So it really took me four years of appointments at that point. To officially get a diagnosis, I went through every type of doctor, every type of test. With ALS, you have to rule out every other option. There's no test that comes back that says you're positive for ALS. You really have to cross off everything else before they can call it and diagnose you. Really? So it was four years of appointments. And at the four year mark, I finally started getting weakness in my right foot, which was the only reason they were able to diagnose it as ALS because they, it showed it was progressing throughout my body. Okay. And so I, I've just had a ton of weakness in my legs since my, my muscles have atrophied quite a bit in my legs. So my calves are like little sticks at this point. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a long process to get that diagnosis and, I think part of it is, you know, I'm not really what you picture when you think of ALS. I think a lot of people picture an older population or male potentially. And that's probably because like Lou Gehrig and Stephen Hawking are the faces of this disease. Mm -hmm. Um, But once we started seeing, you know, things lining up more and more with ALS, uh, we started realizing that a lot of what we knew about ALS was wrong. And I think that slowed down a lot of my diagnosis.
0: Okay. Uh, Could you expand on that a bit?
1: Yeah, I think, well, one, I was 29 when I started getting symptoms. I don't think anyone pictures a younger person who seems very much alive to be given this fatal diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, it really wasn't in my family. And I thought a big chunk of it was hereditary. I thought that was something that just ran in families, but it turns out only only 10% of cases are genetic in the ALS okay. world. So when I got genetically tested two years into my diagnosis process and it came back clear, I thought I was safe. I was like, Oh, I'm good. It's, you know, it's not in my genes. Mm-hmm. Um, and my presentation is a little bit different too. I I've had a slower progression. Most people, Die within two to five years of being of of symptom onset, really. And so, for me, being five years into symptoms and it only really affecting my legs at this point is just not what most doctors, you know, read in their case studies when they're going to med school. They know of it as a very fast disease, a very progressive disease. And so, I think all of those things combined, plus, you know, just seeing a a young woman whose life you don't want to ruin by diagnosing her, I think. A lot of that led to a longer diagnosis period
0: yeah so usually the diagnosis is faster than four years then
1: I think it can all it always takes a bit longer than something like cancer which you can scan for yeah. or you know some diseases where you get a blood test and it's very clear you have something mm-hmm. Um with ALS you always have to rule everything else out but I think Four years is on the longer side of yeah. uh, of the spectrum.
0: It's it's funny when you said that you need to rule things out, and then you, you know, the conclusion is ALS. It's very unlike a lot of the conditions we've had on the podcast. And oh,
1: really? But how
0: how does it make you feel in a way that? The, the, like the fact that there's no test and, and d- is there not a part of you that thinks maybe it's not that?
1: So not really. I don't really choose. I think what's what my conclusion was out of understanding that it's a, a diagnosis by exclusion mm-hmm. is more just that it's, a very under-researched, underfunded disease. Like that was my big takeaway is that Mm -hmm. we don't have any sort of biomarker yet to tell us, you know, you have ALS one and then two, here's how you're going to progress. Like I've been a slow progressor so far, knock on wood. Some people progress in a matter of months and they're entirely paralyzed in a matter of months. So like, there's just not an understanding yet in the ALS world of why people get it why some people progress faster than others. Um, th- there's there's research being done constantly. I just think my biggest takeaway was that like those researchers need way more money to be able to get some of these answers. It's such an underfunded disease for how devastating it is.
0: Yeah, and it's true for unfortunately a lot of diseases, conditions, um, and a lot of them Rely on public funds or Mm -hmm. like organizations that make it a mission to provide the funds that they couldn't get elsewhere. Right? Uh, Yeah, it's unfortunately the the situation we're in in our
1: yeah. And what's tricky with ALS is people become incapacitated so quickly, or they die so quickly that one, they can't advocate for themselves because typically once you get diagnosed like if you if you're told you have three months to live six months to live, you're not going to spend time on capitol hill you're not you don't have the ability to to really advocate for this disease and and make people understand why it's so devastating and then two, it also leads to people thinking it's super rare because at one time there's not a lot of people living with it, yeah. but that's not because it's rare it's because it's so so deadly it's such a quick death sentence that people assume like oh I'll never get that that's like one in a million when mm-hmm. it's not it's like one in 300 over a, a lifetime phase mm-hmm. um or span so we're we're kind of at a disadvantage just by the nature of the disease itself in that we don't have a ton of advocates we don't have a survivor group the way like a cancer does or like an MS does like these diseases have survivors that can battle for us battle for you i suppose if you're dealing with those conditions whereas ALS we don't have that like i'm i'm a really lucky case in that i'm a slow progressor i still have my voice most people lose their voices really early on and so that's kind of what i'm trying to do is like make up for that gap that we've had for so long
0: yeah so when you get this diagnosis, which is life-threatening, life-shortening, mm-hmm. how did you react to that?
1: It's, it's funny because I had gone to so many doctor's appointments in those four years that I was so desensitized to them that by the time I was going to the appointment where I got the diagnosis, I didn't even bring anyone. I'd been to so many appointments that I was like, it's just going to be another one where they say, you know, I have a weak left foot and they don't have a name for it. And I'm like, you know, this lightning in a bottle where no one can name what I have. So, like, no, there's no point in people worrying about me. Then I go to this appointment and the doctor's running the same test I've had a million times. And for the first time, after that test he pulled up next to me and was like i don't like what i'm seeing and that was the first moment where i was like oh no this is this is like the result that i kind of put out of my head over the 4 years like i'd heard als be brought up in those 4 years but it was always very quickly rebuffed because you know i just don't present normally like als does mm-hmm. and so after that appointment I kind of knew that was my destiny. He he told me like, it's definitely a motor neuron disease. I want to set you up with an ALS clinic so they can actually give you a, a confirmation. And so I went home after that appointment and I kind of wish I had like filmed this time of my life because it's a little bit blank. Like I remember I crawled into bed with like a big bag of M&M's and I think I read like a book a day. My my Goodreads numbers were off the charts because I was just like escaping in my head. Yeah. And I had a couple of my closest friends who knew I was going to that appointment text me being like, how'd the appointment go? Just thinking it was another appointment. And I just had to be like, not good, but like, I I feel really weird right now. So I don't know if I am ready to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then I had a call with my family where we were all just crying and it was like that for a couple of months, I think. Like it was, it was kind of just a survival period for a few months there, um, where I was just trying to like distract myself. But then every now and then I would like Google ALS and then close out the window and just start again. So it was, it was a rough few months.
0: Oh wow, yeah, I bet. I, did you get any? mental health support, anything that helped you accept the diagnosis and then try to move on?
1: Not in those first couple of months. I think in those months, I was still trying to really be in denial about everything. And so I didn't even really like talking about it with doctors or with people in my family. Like I was, I was kind of just, uh, keeping everything very surface level because otherwise I would get really upset. Mm. And then a few months in, it's a different form of, of mental health uh, therapy than you would think. But I went to a friend's wedding. It was one of my closest friends from college and I was a bridesmaid at the wedding. And so I was like, am I really going to walk in in a bridesmaid dress? That's like a little too tight because I'd only been eating M&M's. And then with, with, with a walker like that, I was using a walker at that point and I was so embarrassed walking into that wedding, but I turned to my best friend since childhood who was there too. And I was like, this, it's just hitting me now. Like how embarrassing this is going to be. I don't think I can do this. Like we got to leave. And she was like, or what if we just made it super fun and like, you're going to end up with a story out of it either way. So let's just like, try to make it fun and a couple hours later like the bride was limboing under my walker i was giving people walker walker rides all over the dance floor like we ended up just having so much fun and my friends just rallied around me that i kind of got to the the like mental realization that like you know not everything has to change just because we put a label on what i'd been dealing with for the last 4 years it doesn't mean you know i need to crawl into a hole and and be sad. Like, I can still keep living my life. There's just, you know, some new additions into my life now. Like, I have a little bit more of a purpose than I had before. So, that wedding was kind of like shock therapy a little bit. And after that, I just decided, like, I'm going to start sharing my story on social media. And maybe, some, like, for me at the beginning, it was just so I could get used to talking about it and, like, trying to break the ice a little bit with so many people asking me what was going on with me. I was like, I'd rather just tell it into my camera and not have to have these sad one-on-one conversations with everyone where they don't know what to say. So I just started sharing and it's been like a little over a year since I posted that first video. And on social media, it's kind of just taken off from there. So it's been, it's been amazing, really. Like I think ALS has brought a lot of good into my life.
0: Wow, well, that's amazing to hear. Uh, I wasn't expecting to hear that at all today. Yeah. Um, I've noted down, turn to your friends. I think that's what I got from, from what you've just shared. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, like the the advocacy part. I hear a lot about advocacy actually helping deal with the, the condition, is that something you can relate to?
1: A hundred percent. Like it at first I would say it helped me talk about it. So it, it it kind of like trained me to almost be a little desensitized to it, to talking about ALS. Like at the beginning, I think I would take everything in such an emotional and personal way. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm focused on teaching people about ALS and showing them, you know, someone like me can have ALS, it's, it's desensitized me a little and it's allowed me to look at it from like a, you know, this is my life and we're going to make adjustments type of way. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it brought me a ton of community. I mean, I found support groups. I found other people living with ALS. I found people who know nothing about ALS, but are just interested in my story and want to follow along. Um, and the community online has been amazing. So, I would say the advocacy piece like keeps bringing me new great surprises.
0: Uh, That's great. And the power of communities is very obvious. And it's very good to be able to have that. I think that's a very good side of social media now. Yeah. Does advocacy lead you to um, be involved in research at all?
1: It does. I... I'm involved in research from my ALS clinic mostly. So with ALS, you go to a clinic every three months and they basically tell you like where you've gotten worse because inevitably you will have gotten worse somewhere. Um, But on the research side of things, they do a lot of trials. What's tricky about clinical trials and that type of research is that with ALS, they expect people to die so quickly that the trials are really only available to people who have been having symptoms for two years or less. Okay. Yeah. When I got diagnosed, I had been having symptoms for four years. So I was already past that point where I could be included in trials, which, you know, isn't great. I understand that the data behind it because like they don't want you to enroll in a trial and then die and then not be able to collect that data. And I understand I'm an outlier and that I progress slowly, but I am able to do things like expanded access to trials where I can still get access to the drugs, but my data doesn't really, my data doesn't, you know, help the trial by any means. So I'm involved, I'm as involved as I can be on the research side. Um, But my role I've really taken on is fundraising for ALS research. Like I said, it's such an underfunded disease and, you know, the government funding, really is not comparable to what it is for other diseases for ALS and so I've focused on trying to fundraise as much for ALS research as possible because that's ultimately where we're going to get some kind of answer.
0: Yeah I fully agree. Um, So on your on the topic of like having slower progression Mm -hmm. than than most do you have a, a feel for how slower you're progressing, and if if it has a an impact on your life expectancy in a way. I
1: I don't really know. So what's tricky about ALS is it's so hetero. I always have trouble with this word, heterogeneous. It's so different for everyone. Is how I'll say it. Yeah. And so like, you know, Stephen Hawking lived fifty some years with ALS. Some people live a month after they get diagnosed like there's it, it there's so much variety in every ALS patient. And so with my doctor when I first got diagnosed, I was like, how long do I have? Like that was a question I asked. Mm-hmm. And so my doctor basically said to me, "Look, you've been a slow progressor so far and we don't expect that to change. We think the way you've started progressing is the way you'll continue progressing." And so she didn't give me any sort of time frame which In hindsight, I'm so grateful for because I think unless it's like a six month to a year span, I don't think it benefits people knowing. Like, I think if it's in the next six months, you got to know because there's a lot of stuff you got to take care of. But if they say, you know, it could be two years, it could be like 10 years, it could be 20 years, who knows, then you can still kind of live in the denial with some normalcy too, which is kind of how I've chosen to do it.
0: We're, yeah and, and and I guess if it's 10 years or 20 years it, I assume that's not something that defines you anymore
1: yeah I mean even I think if it is two years and I, I don't know about it mm-hmm. I still think it's better to live a little bit in that denial yeah. where I can still act like I have a normal life
0: yeah that makes sense so you mentioned that for the moment it only affects your legs Mm -hmm. and you mentioned that you needed a walker to go to your friend's wedding how does it affect your mobility
1: i went from using a cane to a walker to a wheelchair in in like a seven month span it was really fast so when i say i'm a slow progressor it's crazy to think about that's considered slow. Like I lost Mm -hmm. the ability to walk in half a year. Um, So I've been lucky, but it's weird. It's like the luckiest of an unlucky case. So I use a wheelchair pretty much full time now. Um, I'm still able to transfer from my wheelchair to like the couch or to my bed or to the bathroom, but Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not safe for me to try walking really anymore and it's very tiring to try walking so I pretty much live live in the wheelchair at this point
0: yeah have you got any issues like getting around with the wheelchair I'm always conscious that there are areas that are not designed for them at all do you find that uh,
1: yes but like my neighborhood so I moved I moved here about a year ago um, right after my diagnosis, I moved here to be closer to my family and the neighborhood that I'm in was built in the last like seven years. So it's so accessible. Like everything has ramps. Everything has automatic doors. The the roads are smooth. Everything is very accessible because it's so new. And I think that contributes to my good mood a lot is because I find it easy to get around but when I go to like a friend's house or when I go to, you know, an older neighborhood, I'm reminded that like this world is just not yet fully accessible. And it like this past weekend, I went to a friend's house who like everything is on one floor, but just to get into the house, there's three long steps away from each other. Um, and they're like, at a turn so you can't even really put a ramp there like it just took us 30 minutes to even get me in the house and i'm like man this is why disabled people can get so frustrated is because yeah. like nothing is easy luckily in my neighborhood things are easy so i i try to stick around here pretty often
0: yeah well yeah i would do the same yeah uh, but i i guess that's something you realize only when when you have to to be in a wheelchair because
1: It's never something I even paid attention to before. I mean, even before this, like, I'm sure I used handicapped bathrooms. I'm sure I used those stalls. Like I think about it and I'm like, I definitely would go in the bigger stall if people were in the other bathroom stalls. And now when someone walks out of a wheelchair accessible bathroom and I'm sitting there in a wheelchair, I see the moment of panic in their eyes. And I'm like, I'm sure I did it too. Like, don't stress about it
0: yeah 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 um so how is it progressing at the moment and then looking in the future do you know how it's likely to progress
1: not really so the way it's progressed so far it started in my left foot and kind of crept up my left leg then a couple of years later, it started in my right foot and has been creeping up my right leg. So at this point, my right leg is still stronger than my left leg, but both are very weak. Um, I also have some ab weakness as well, like my core. Um, but that's really the only, and those places have been hit hard. Like my left leg at this point doesn't really do anything. It's just kind of a limb attached to me. Like there's no okay. function. Um, my right leg can still kick out a little bit. Um, but yeah, the, my lower half of my body at this point is like very minimally useful. I don't know how it's going to progress. I know with ALS, they expect every single muscle to be affected. You're expected to go fully paralyzed. That also affects your voice, that affects your swallowing, that affects your breathing. So that's ultimately like when, once you start having respiratory issues, that's when things start getting really serious because, Mm -hmm. you know, if your lungs are getting super weak, you're not able to breathe on your own. You either, you know, pass away or you go onto a machine that can help you breathe. And so I, I don't know how it's going to progress. Like there's no map of what's going to happen next. I think that's, what's the scariest part is that like, Tomorrow I could wake up and my finger could start feeling weak. And then I'm like, okay, I guess my hand is next. Or I could wake up without, you know, I could be slurring my speech tomorrow. I have no idea. And so it's scary, the unknown.
0: Yeah. When you say weakness, is it like your muscles that you can't use anymore? But do you, do you still have feelings in your legs?
1: Yes. I have full sensation. It's just the muscles that stop working. Like my brain basically cannot tell my foot to move anymore. Okay. It like, it tries to send the message, but there are things called motor neurons that are basically allowing those messages to be sent. Mm -hmm. And with ALS, the motor neurons are what's dying off. So that connection, it's almost like if you were to flip on a light switch, but someone cuts the cord between the light and the switch yeah, Like you're telling it to move, but there's nothing to translate that message.
0: Okay. Is it frustrating? Like, it, do you have a feeling of frustration to, to not be able to to order your muscles to do what you want?
1: At times, I would say like when I'm in bed and I'm trying to roll over mm-hmm. and I have to manually grab my leg and move it. Like those are the times where I'm like, everything's just a little bit harder every day. And I try to translate my frustration into like humor and laughing about it. Like that's the only way I can manage through all of this is just kind of laughing about it and being like, I don't remember anything being this hard before. Um, But yeah, there's, there's a lot that's, that's frustrating. Um, Like even when I'm in my wheelchair, if I'm like crossing my legs lately, my legs have been like not able to even just hold that position. So they just kind of like flop around and you're like, why can't I control like half my body? It's just a weird feeling.
0: Yeah. And is it right at the start of the leg or like do your thighs muscles? Can it's you kind of me like there?
1: crept up from the bottom Okay. for me. So like at this point it's like all the way up my left leg and creeping up my right leg.
0: Okay. Um, So you mentioned earlier that you're doing patient advocacy and you're doing fundraising. What sort of events do you do?
1: Yeah, it's been, I really kicked that off this past summer. So in May, May is ALS Awareness Month in the US. And so I decided on TikTok and Instagram, I was going to do a video a day just answering questions from people about ALS. And so I made it through the whole month and I was so shocked. I was like, I can't believe I didn't miss one day. But on the final day, I decided I needed some sort of call to action because one of the questions I kept getting is like, How can we help? Like you at this point, you have a community here ready to be deployed. Like tell us what to do. And so what I asked of people was one, share my story with like three friends. And then two, I created an Instagram fundraiser for an ALS research organization. And I just told people like donate what you can. And I set the goal to 25K for the month. And we hit it we hit that goal before I went to bed that night.
0: Wow. Really? Which is
1: crazy. And then a couple of days later, so I, I upped the goal to 50K. We hit that a couple of days later. So I upped it to 75k. We hit that, or actually, I think we got stuck like right under 75. And then I got a message from a couple that wants to stay anonymous that said, "If you hit 100k, I'll match it."
0: Amazing.
1: So I I had a call with them to make sure it was legitimate and not just some spam, yeah. and it was. And so I announced to on social media saying, like, we if we can get 30k more we can double what we've, what we've donated. And the next, so I posted that at like 8 PM at night and like 8 AM, we hit a hundred K. And so we, we got, we ended up total with like 250 K, including the donors match, um, for this research organization. And so after that, I was like, damn, like I, I've never done the fundraising thing before, but like, people want to help. Like it was so many strangers were donating. Like I only have so many friends. Most of them were just internet strangers that wanted to support. And so that has kind of been like my form of advocacy or my form of fundraising Mm -hmm. is, you know, getting people from social media involved. And then ideally trying to find like, Anonymous donors that want to match. Um, we found a couple of those that say like, if you get 25k, we'll we'll pitch in 25k. So it's been almost like a fun. I, I was in sales for a long time um, in the tech world, and so it's it's almost been like a sales challenge where I'm like, how do I get people invested enough in this story that they want to take action on it?
0: Yeah, well, it sounds incredible, and again, a very good example of how social media can help yeah I love the idea of share with three friends that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast because sharing raising awareness goes a long way to people accepting and understanding conditions better
1: yeah I think like the whole storytelling aspect is so important because like my mom is always like Brooke people aren't tied to ALS like that's not What they're tied to, they're tied to like you and your story. So like you need to keep telling your story, because if you if you look at ALS, like the disease is really depressing. All you hear is like there's no cure. It's very quick death sentence. It's underfunded. Like it's all these things where you're just like, this is such a bummer. Like why would I spend time? I don't even want to research into this more because it's just like getting me down. Mm -hmm. But what I'm trying to do is make it a lot more conversational and approachable just by like living my life publicly Mm -hmm. and that way people can can kind of associate als with a face as opposed to just you know depressing statistics
0: yeah yeah and you forget the numbers anyway but you're true that's true you'll remember the stories right how does it affect your ability to work has it had any impact
1: so I work, I've worked at Salesforce, which is a big tech company, for the last seven years. Actually, today is my seven-year anniversary. I, I didn't even know that, but they, test, they texted me this morning and they said, Happy anniversary.
0: Congratulations. So,
1: thank you. <laughs> and so before COVID, I worked first in their San Francisco office, then in their New York office. And I had been limping throughout that time frame. That's where all my coworkers were the ones who were pointing it out. With COVID, we all went remote. And during that time, I decided to move back closer to my family in Maryland. And that was right when I was getting diagnosed. Like, that's when my symptoms were getting worse. So I wanted to be closer to family. Um, But with COVID, because I was already remote and I told my employer about what I was going through, they just kept me on as a full time remote employee. So now I'm able to like you're looking at my desk right now. This is my work desk. I work out of my kitchen most days. Mm -hmm. Um, And my job is mostly being on calls all day, on Zooms all day, and just talking with partners and building relationships. So I'm really lucky that my job is catered to any kind of disability because I get to work out of my home. I know a lot of people in my support group were like nurses or... Teachers and those jobs you you really can't do once you start losing mobility because or when you lose your voice because it's it's just too much on the body for someone going through ALS. So I'm really, really lucky that I've I picked tech first of all. I'm glad I picked the field, but also that I've been able to to keep working. And I, I plan to keep working because Salesforce has been they they've actively tried to make Life better for me, and it's not just you know the job portion. But I've shared my story with Salesforce. I had the opportunity to share it at our company kickoff in front of all 70,000 plus employees, and they raised like half a million dollars in a week after I shared my story. And they're trying to just keep getting me more opportunities to share the story because they understand that, like, they well, one, it's a great look for them because they're supporting an employee going through something. So it's it's almost like a good recruiting tool because they can be like, look, look at you know how we've catered to our employees. Um, but it's also just like a good example of a company doing good when they didn't have to.
0: Yeah, that sounds really really good. Um, it's great to see more and more companies offering the right flexibility for people Mm -hmm. who have health conditions because like hearing you talk seeing you as you are it doesn't actually stop you from doing your work
1: no people don't even know what I'm going Mm -hmm. through until I and that's like I almost have to come out with it and be like by the way like if you hear beeping it's because I'm in a wheelchair like I because from the you know, neck up, you can't tell my voice is still intact. Mm -hmm. Um, on wood. So yeah, it's, it's always an interesting conversation that I have to have.
0: Yeah. Well, overall, to be honest, I I wasn't expecting such a positive message out of, (laughs) out of talking to you today. It's quite incredible that it's you are, and, and that your message is so positive. I love that. Um, I have one final question if you don't mind. Yeah. Um what's your happy place? A place where you feel at peace.
1: Oh, I like that question. I feel like it's changed over the years. Lately, especially in the summertime, it's in my parents' so my, my parents still live in my childhood home. And they live like 15 minutes from where I live right now. So Lately, I've been going over to their house and they have like a nice little backyard set up in the garden where my dog just zooms around their yard. And I just sit out there with my parents. Um, sometimes like friends come over and visit, but I would say my parents' backyard. It's also like it was the spot of many of our high school parties. So it's it's a weird thing to be like, you know, 18-year-old me was over there like sneaking beers. Now, like 34-year-old me is sitting in my wheelchair Right where I was, so I would say that's my happy place right now. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I, I guess this place has seen so many things happen and has it seems seen you grow. Too, yeah, yeah,
1: if the walls could talk or whatever. <laughs> <say. laughs>
0: yeah, sounds great. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for taking the time. uh Thank you from like the ALS community uh, for raising awareness. Um amazed by how positive and and upbeat you are Uh, so that's that's really great to see
1: thank you I get that a lot I think maybe I'm missing something in my brain that that I should have but thank you so much for having me this is really nice